0: If this is your first time here, I want to personally welcome you. My name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. I usually do the bulk of the preaching and teaching. And so today, we're going to conclude a series we started six six weeks ago in the book of Judges. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Judges. Meet me in Judges chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised really high. Don't be shy. And then one of the ushers will be able to walk down your aisle and get you a Bible so that you can follow along with us. And if you don't own one, keep the copy that we're handing out. It is our gift to you. A couple things. Immediately following this service, we are going to have a Q&A. So any questions you have pertaining um, what is said today, what wasn't said today, um, anything in Judges or anything... Pertain to Christianity as a whole. Uh, stick around about five minutes after the service, uh, we'll be able to start that QA. And we're also going to do it again after the 5 p.m. service um, following the services. Um, also, next week we start a new series. I want you guys all to be here for the beginning of this series. This is a definite, tangible, tangible uh, series in which we titled Bless and what does it look like for us who have been blessed to be a blessing? How do we serve? How do we continue to participate as a community and so forth? It'd be really good for many of you who are new to this church. I mean, in the last three weeks, we feel like you guys showed up from somewhere uh we'd like to try to get you guys connected into the life of our church and uh and uh, make some things happen and so just wanted to let you know that all right let me give you guys a heads up on where we're going today if you were not here last week i told you this is not a, a sermon that you you probably want your kids in and so um there's a lot of graphic very very difficult things to teach this is by far the hardest sermon that I've taught throughout Judges, and probably one of the hardest sermons that I've ever taught because of the nature of what's written in the scripture, and so I just want to let you know that from the front end. Um, We are covering five chapters, and so the bulk of it will be me paraphrasing a lot, and so you'll be like, wait, what happened? How'd that connect with this? I'll try my best, and we'll land at some spots and give some application. Chapter 19, for the most part, we'll spend a lot of our time there and looking at how bad it got for the people of Israel, okay? And so let me just let you know on the front end. if you go, okay, what did Ricardo talk about? He talked about how bad it got for the people of Israel. Okay, what, how bad it got for the people of Israel. So um, with that, let's, let's pray. And please pray for me to get through this message. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the gift of your son, the revelation of who you are through your word. We thank you that you were honest to us about who you are and what you were like. And you're honest about who we are, and especially who we are apart from you. God, there are some difficult, difficult things to say and hear. Um, I pray for your spirit, that your word says that the spirit of God is a comforter, Lord. We need the spirit to be our comforter. Your word says the spirit of God brings about conviction of sin and of righteousness. Lord, we pray for that. God, we ask that we'd be able to heed your words in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have these things here called redemption communities, and they're smaller gathering of people that meet. Uh, They're like a small group, and some of you have been a part of a small group. Now, in a small group, what will inevitably happen at some point is that your small group leader will say, hey, um, what we want to do is we want to go around and have everybody share their story. Um, That's code language for I don't want to prepare for the next six weeks, so you guys just can keep, keep leading, right? And it's really powerful because you get a chance to hear everybody's story. Now, here's how this goes. Inevitably, there's somebody in the group that you know. And you know who they are. You maybe hung out with them and so forth. And you know that maybe they have a pretty bad background or a bad upbringing or something like that. But you don't know to the level of what detail of how deep it goes. And then that particular night that they share their story and they go through detail after detail after detail, you, you, you find yourself being emotionally engaged. And then you might say something like this. I had no idea it was that bad. Like I knew about it. But I had no idea it was like that. That's the experience that we get towards the end of Judges. In fact, chronologically, judges is over. Samson was the last judge, but it's almost like the narrator says, here's an ap- uh, appendix, uh, chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. And, and, and think of it this way. If, if first 16 chapters were a bird's eye view of going, this was bad, this was bad, this was bad, and it was kind of giving us a view, now he's saying, okay, come to the ground, and let me give you some examples, some snapshots here of how bad it really got. And by the end, we go, Dang. I had no idea it was that bad when there was no king and the people of God did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's what we look at today. And so these snapshots is this first couple chapters, we, we hear about a guy named Micah who takes religion or like God talk with no substance in his chest and lives in such a way that it just shows that he's ungodly. The Levite or the priest around him is ungodly. And then the following story is even more tragic. And the following story just picks up off of that. And then it ends. So... We got a lot to cover, right? And there's no redemptive-like ending. I'm going to tell you, I got to the very end of it last service, and I could tell the people were looking at me like, all right, tell us some good news. No, 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 no. That's just the way the author um, finished it, and I, I think it was like that on purpose. So pick up with me in chapter 17, verse 1. And there was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, "'I have 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it.' And his mother said, "'Blessed be my son by the Lord.' And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, "'I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image.'" Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. I want you to stop here for a second. Let's just talk about this before we start paraphrasing. One, there's this guy here named Micah. No, he's bad Micah, all right? Um, there's another Micah in the Bible that we're going to learn about at some point when we teach through the prophet Michael. Micah. He's good. This guy, bad Micah, right? The first Micah in the Bible. You say, why is he bad? He stole from his mom, right? He, he stole 1,100 pieces of silver. He hears his mom go, curse be the man who stole And he's like, oh, mom, dang it. Uh, I stole that, right? And somebody goes, oh, who steals from the mom? You've all stolen from your mom before, right? We just used to call it keeping the change, right? And so you, 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 you've been there before. So Micah steals his money, and what happens now is his mom goes, blessed be the Lord. It's like, what? Like there's a side of parenting, right, that we know is abusive, and, and like we don't, we don't condone that by any means. I think there's another side of that same coin is when you don't discipline your kids and you don't set any boundaries either. And so this mom just goes, oh, you stole it and you found it? Praise be to God. And it's like, what's up, mom? None of our moms were like that, right? You stole it? Get your butt in the room right now. I'll be there in a second, right? Maybe my mom talked like that, right? So there's, there's this sense for it. And then she says, blessed be the Lord. Now, here's something that you need to understand of all of chapter 17 and 18. It could be summed up to this. The grossest or most dangerous form of godlessness is when our godlessness is wrapped or couched um, ultimately in an exterior that looks godly. Meaning when we know how to say the right things and we know how to look very religious and know when to stand up and when to sit down and know certain scriptures and know things about God, but yet there's no substance in our being that we're not living from a heart that begins to serve and love and follow God. It's just fake religion, and that's what we have here. And it looks on the outside. She's like, praise the Lord. I'm going to give my money to the Lord. Only 200 though. I'm going to give it to the Lord. But then she goes and goes, not just to the Lord. I'm actually going to give it to a silver maker who can make an image for my son. Didn't Didn't the Lord say not to do that? That's exactly what he said. Don't do that. Here's why. When we create an image of who we think God is, Oftentimes, we just create him in our own image. Or we create him in the way that we would like him to be. We want a loving God, but then we don't want to show the, the side of God that's, that shows judgment and wrath. Or we say we understand that God is a God of justice, but we don't really want to show his compassion. That what happens is we begin to form God um, into a particular image that we think could fit in our heart. Instead of having God be who he is, and allow our hearts to be reshaped into the likeness of who he is, ultimately by his spirit. What what you have here is picking and choosing what we like about God, and you go, "What were the Israelites thinking about? What are we thinking about the way it 's called for us today is we 're not carving things what we just call it is very convenient, comfortable christianity that if there 's a way that I can believe in Jesus, my kids could be safe, I could be married, things could be comfortable, I can have all my health then yes, that's the Jesus I want to believe in. If it's comfortable, it's convenient. That if he doesn't ask a whole lot of me, as long as I obey and then say the God things and say the God phrase, phrases, if I just put the little sin button, which is usually in the name of Jesus, and if I say that, then, then maybe that would be it. It doesn't work like that. And Micah begins to show his heart, that his heart's not for God. He builds a shrine. does isn't build a shrine. He also builds an ephod. Well, if you went here a couple of weeks ago, an ephod was something that the priest would put on. He wasn't a priest. And this wasn't the place or the house of worship. But he made it the house of worship. That place was actually in another location called Silo. Well, all he needs now is a priest. And guess what he finds? A Levite. And a Levite was a particular tribe of people. Um, They were priests. And so he finds a Levite. and He tells the Levite, hey, I got this ephod. I got this shrine. We could do this God thing here. Um, You could be my priest and I could be blessed by you and God will bless this. What do you think? And the priest is like, no, I don't know if I should do this. He goes, I'll pay you. Yeah, I think I should do this right? And so the priest now is now his priest. That's the Levi. Now, the story progresses here because Micah's got things coming for him, but then the people of Dan come, okay? Look with me in chapter 18, verse 1, and you'll hear this phrase quite a bit. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Remember that. No king, no leader, no one's pointing them to God. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen upon them. You go, I thought all the nations had their, their, their land. No, no. Remember in chapter 1, God said, go and take the land. The first group of people took it. The next group kind of took it. The next group kind of took it. And next group kind of. Well, then Dan didn't take anything. So for all these years, they've been this semi-nomadic people group who have not found a place. So they show up to where Micah's at, but Micah's not at the shrine, he's not at his house, but the Levites there. And they say, What are you doing here? And he goes, Oh, I was passing by and this dude offered me some money, so I'm doing this priest thing over here, got this little priest gig going on, but what's up, right? And and then, then he says that the Danites say, Hey, why don't you pray to God on our behalf? Like, seek God and see if he wants us to go spy out this land so we can find a land. And so Micah prays on his behalf excuse me, the Levite prays on his behalf. And then they go, so they send five spies out to the land. They see the people are unsuspecting so they can just take over them. They see that the land is, has security and there's, there's plenty of things that they can have there. So they come back and they're like, hey, hey we're going to go take that land. God never really said do that, but we're going to do it anyway. And they said, you know what? Give us this shrine. So they take the shrine. Give us your ephod. So they take the ephod. And then Mike is, or excuse me, the Levite's going, what are you doing? Why are you taking all this? And he goes, why don't you come with us? And he's like, "No, I'm 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 doing this priest thing here. It's, we'll pay you. Yeah, I will go." <laughs> so, so, so he makes that decision again. Like, by the way, the Levite's supposed to be the one that's pointing people to God. He's the shepherd. He's the pastor. He's the priest. He's saying, "Here's God, and 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 here's the people. You guys, make sure you God, God, God. That's gone." Well, you're like, where's Micah? What is he going to do? Micah comes back, and he goes, what are you guys doing? What is this thing that you're doing? And he's like ready to fight them. And then like all the boys come out, like 5,000 of them um, come out. And he's like, what? what? Never mind. Never mind. It's like that fight. Like, you're ready to fight that dude? And he's like, no, I'm about to fight. He goes, oh, here's my brother, my brother. Nah, did I say fight you? Hug you. <laughs> Hug you, right? Right? So, so Micah just gets everything jacked from him. And that's the, that, the end we hear from Micah. But the Danites now go, and they plunder these people. And they take them out. And they do it in the name of God. All this God talk. And, and then they, they, they plant the shrine and the image that Micah had made. And they begin to worship him. And then you hear something towards the very end of 18 that makes you think, oh, man, this was worse than what we thought. Look at verse 30 with me. Actually, let's start in verse 29. It says, and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born in Israel. But the name of the city was Laash at first, at the first And the people of Dan set up the carved image. These are the people supposed to be worshiping God. They set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity in the land. I wanted you guys to catch that. The Levite didn't have a name until this point. And you catch who the Levite is, the priest? It's Moses, his grandson. It's almost the narrator is going, this is story is bad, and this wicked uh, Levi, this guy's bad, he's bad, he's bad. Oh, yeah, by the way, it's Moses' his grandson. Like, like, meaning, this were the people who his, his ancestors, and not, like, far ancestors, his grandfather God used and brought about uh, the people and saw the great acts of redemption and brought down the God, God's law. And it lets us know something here. What D.A. Carson talks about how the one generation gets the gospel and embraces it. The next generation just kind of assumes it. Like, yeah, we're kind of Christian. Yeah, that's what we do. I kind of raised in a Christian house. And then the next generation completely misses it. They missed it. Like, they're missing it. It's, it, it the narrator is saying, this is how bad it got on a religious level. Like, the most religious person there should be is missing it and missing the mark. Now, let me pause here for a second. That story, bad. Everything from here, even more tragic. Even more tragic. In fact, I know most of us are kind of like, not most of us, maybe some of us are visual learners. So when you hear a story being told and so forth, you begin to allow your mind to go there. You try to visualize it. I'm going to ask you for the sake of uh, the nature of what's going to be said here. Try not to go there. Just try to use your thinking minds as best as you can um, um, to, as this story is continue uh, to be read. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. The narrator is trying to make a point. God was not at the center. God talk, a lot of religion, but no relationship. Uh, There was no one pointing to God. And here's what happens individually and corporately and societally when you remove God out of the center and there's no worship of God. In those days, there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took himself a concubine from Bethlehem to Judah. Let's pause there for a second. So the Levite, the godly one, this is a different Levite now, He's supposed to be godly. He's supposed to point people to God. Well, long ago, and these people knew this, God had set his design and his desire for what he wanted marriage to look like. You read about it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and it's one man and it's one woman, not one man and many women, not many women and women. Like, it's one man, one woman. And yet, throughout the scriptures, you don't see any of God's people, even the faithful ones. You don't even see them holding that. It's always a guy and multiple wives. And you know what? When you read the stories, it never works out. <laughs> Like, God knows one wife is enough, right? (laughs) And and one husband is enough. Trust me, right? It never works out for him. Well, then now you have the Levite of all people. The Levite has a concubine. And a concubine is like a second-class wife. That was in their day a side chick, right? And so that's who this, this concubine is to him. She's no more than just an object for him. And what happens when we begin to see is in verse 2, is she actually walks out on the marriage. His concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months, this separation for four months a- after this act, and then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of his donkeys, and she brought him uh, into his father's, her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. So, so now you have this, it seems like the Levite like maybe might like this girl, or at least love her maybe. Maybe. He's like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go. I know she cheated on me, but I'm gonna we're gonna make this right. So he shows up to her dad's house. She says, This is my dad. And the dad is excited. You go, okay, why is the dad so excited? In that culture, um, it was a disgrace to your family if you committed adultery. And the fact that the husband now is coming, the Levite, he's coming to the father. And, 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 and bringing gifts and wants his wife back, it means that the disgrace has moved. So he's excited. You know what he does? He shows hospitality because in that culture, hospitality was huge. It's like, you're here, let's eat. And so it says they eat, they drink, they get married, they eat, they drink, they get married. And then they, like, they have a good time, good time. And he wakes up because I'm going to leave today. He goes, no, nah, don't leave today. Eat, drink. And then he goes, man, you've been drinking too much. No, give me your keys. And they stay. And this happens again and again and again. Finally, the Levites going, hey, man, I've been drinking way too much. Uh, you, you are a great host, but I got to go back. I, I need to go back to where I'm going. Verse 10. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite of Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. And he had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near uh, Jebus, and, and the day was nearly over, the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass to Gibeah. You go, man, this guy seems to be godly. Let me just back up for a little bit. The conversation with the father and the Levite was only with the father and the Levite. The woman never spoke in this. Meaning, both begin to treat this woman like an object. Hey, she's my daughter. She's my property. If you want to take her, take her. Hey, she's my concubine. If I want her, I can take her. At no no moment does the woman go, hey, guys, what do you get? Like, do I get a voice in this? It's like, no. And none of the names are mentioned of the Levite, of the father, or of the concubine. And I believe the narrator is saying this almost to communicate, this is what happened during this time. This is how Levites lived. This is how fathers fought, and this is how women were treated. It was that bad in the day that there was no king and people did what was right in their own eyes. Well, then you get to the point where they're traveling now. And the servant says, hey, let's just go to the Jebusites. He goes, no, let's, He goes, no, let's not go to the place where the people of God are not at. Let's go to where our people are at. And they find themselves in Gibeah. And then what you see next, is they find themselves in the town square and they're just sitting in the town square. They're not in the wilderness. They're where everybody can see them and nobody's saying, come into my house. Now on that day, Everybody welcomed you into their house. in each culture, not just the people of God, just in this time. Hospitality was you come into my house. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to clothe you. Whatever you need, I got you. And they're sitting there, and they're sitting there, and they're sitting there. And nobody comes, which lets us know this place may not be as good as they think it's going to be. And you pick up here in verse 16. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going, and where do you come from? He's like, what are you guys doing here? And eventually he says, hey, why don't you guys come into my house? Like, you should not he's like, you should not be here in the town square. Which would let him know, what's wrong with the town square? He knows something that they don't know yet. All right? You get to the very uh, end of verse 21, and there's another section here. And again, this is the hardest part and it kind of trickles down from there as they were making their hearts merry meaning as they were drinking behold the men of the city worthless fellows surrounded the house beating on the door and they said to the old man the master of the house bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him um that's knowing in a sexual way these men are beating on the door saying the guy who's in your house bring him out here so we may have our way with him sexually um. The master said, verse 23, and the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly Wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. So at one section, it seems like he's going to do the right thing. He's going to do the right thing. He's going to protect him because now he's showing hospitality. He's supposed to protect him. Hey, no, you can't have your way with this man who's in my house. You shouldn't do that. That's sinful, brothers. Let's not act in this vile, wicked way. But then his next response shows that he he do not get it. He continues, says in verse 20 and 24, Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. So we hear this and we go, oh, man, we'd never be there. Before I get back to this man, let me just talk about us. We're like that when it comes to sexual sin. We'll look at certain sin sexually and go, that's vile. Should never do it. Stay away from it, especially when it's homosexual sin. But then there's other areas we go, but this is okay. I mean, that's a sin. But like me sleeping with my boyfriend and me sleeping with my girlfriend. I mean, we're in love. I mean, we're going to get married one day. I mean, like whatever, right? I mean, we'll, we'll accept God's lordship in this part of our life. But in this part of our life, I mean, come on. I mean, it, it's, it's 2016 but we would never put ourselves to think we're like this man, but yet our hearts are so divided, right? I'm not an idiot. Whether you're married or not, there's all sorts of sexual sin in our community. Not the community outside of these eight walls or whatever we have here, but the, 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 the community within us. And then we look at him, but you go, what are you thinking, right? Like, don't you look at him and go, wait a minute, you got it right in verse 23, and then he totally missed it in 24, that you're going to take your daughter and say, no, 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 don't do that to him. Do this to my daughter and do it to his wife. And, and, and you would think the Levite, who in verse 3 acted kindly and said, I need to go get my wife back and so forth. You'd think he'd be like, no, what are you doing offering up my wife? No, it's my wife. He doesn't say anything. In fact, he begins to act it out. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, speaking of the Levite, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all the people saw it said, such a thing has never happened or has been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out, came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. Um, you cannot hear that and not have a visceral response. And I, I want to acknowledge a few things here. We don't all read that the same. And it doesn't all hit us the same. So growing up, for me, um, we lived in the inner city and I was around a lot of people who looked like me. And then we moved to the suburbs, and I was around a lot of people who looked like not like me. And every time there would be, you know, Black History Month, we'd do MLK Day, all these different things, right? It was a big deal for me in my church because it was comfortable. It was like I knew these people, it was like, it was not just information, it was felt. But then what would happen at school, and it was me, like, about uh, three other four people, I would get this sense of, like, oh, shoot, everybody's going to look at me. And it just became, it, it just is this weird feeling. It, 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 like, Black History Month in that context, and, and uh, MLK Day in that context, it, it, it's, it was different for me, right? In a far different, um, difficult way, we read it and go, we gasp. And there's, 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 there's people in this room that read that, and they have a totally different experience of it they have a totally different thought process of it I, I understand that that it's triggering and it's jolting and to hear that is going oh, oh this is not what i expected and so forth and i just want to acknowledge um we don't know what to do with that half the time other than acknowledge that some of us have experienced things that none of us could never even imagine we think this is thousands years ago in the scripture but man it's here and it's in this room it's in our lives. It's in our friends. It's in our family. It's in our children and so forth. And so this is real. I had a woman come up to me after the last service and say, I, it was really hard for her. It was really hard for her. And it's really hard for me. And it should be really hard for us. We should look at this and begin to think sin is trying to obliterate the people of God. That we sin because we're sinners, but we're often sinned against. And the very dignity that we have being created in the image of God, that people in their own sinfulness try to rob and take that away. And there's many of us who have scars that we go, they have taken something from us. And so sin has all its effects and all its brokenness. And the writer of Judges was was, was honest enough to say, this is what happens and this is what continues to happen in the lives of people when there's no God. And it would be easier for us to think like, yeah, yeah, these ungodly people, but let me just think for a second, right? Like we, we, we watch shows like the Wizard of Oz and you hear people say, you know, you hear them say, we're not in Kansas because in Kansas it's okay. But we're not in Kansas so we expect anything to happen. Well, guess what? They're in Kansas. This is the people of God here. These were men who were objectifying women. And don't think it's not happening right now. Don't think just because it didn't act in this way that we look at our women and we looked at them in a such a way that they are a piece of meat to us. It happens, and it is happening, and it's happening with the people of God. Listen to me, if you are a Christian, do not check out right now. Do not say that's how people act in the the Old Testament. No, 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 no. It's here. Like here, like judgment has to start first with the people of God. Not outside of it. There's no them. It's us. And every single one of us, male and female, have to look at ourselves in the mirror and go, Lord, Lord, what are you trying to tell me? Where are my heart's affections? Where am I being drawn to that's outside of you? Where am I halfway stepping ultimately into the world that is drifting me away by the currents of culture instead of being rooted in the person of Christ? So that's real. That's real. And people feel that. And sin is continuing to affect us. This story doesn't end there. In fact, the story goes where the Levite himself now in the beginning of chapter 20, he goes to the people of Israel and he goes, you guys won't believe what happened. They're like, we know what happened because you sent something out to us. And he begins to tell this story and he does what we often do here. Look at with me in, in verse 5. And, and he's talking about what happened. He says, and the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded, surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all of the country of the inheritance of Israel that they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. You see how he hides? He kind of hides behind the truth. He doesn't say, hey, uh, they tried to get me, but I said, no, take her instead. He goes, no, 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 no. They, They tried to get me, but then they took her. And we do that too. We will edit our sins so much to make it seem like it's not as bad. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll edit our sin to make it seem like it's so good. Listen, guys, I don't care who you are. You're a sinner, right? And sometimes it's like, you can't tell other people, you're a sinner. You need to know that so that you would actually reach out for a Savior. Like, that's important. And this guy hides this. But what happens from it is something that had not happened until chapter 1. The people came together. They came together. They wanted to act in justice. There's a righteous indignation, as there should be. If you're reading this and you're not thinking, who's going to go get those guys, you're not alive. You're not alive. When people say, well, I'm a lover, I'm not a fighter. That, if you have A, then there's no way they're going to have B. You can't be a lover without being a fighter. And maybe it takes for you to truly love somebody. Have a kid. Have a spouse. If someone did anything to my kid, I would, I would, I would probably retire. There's just, you have, it's in you. It's in us, right? And so now, they get together, they go to the Lord, and they say, this is bad because... These are our people, but we got to go bring justice. And so they try to just take the guys and they go and they they go to Benjamin, the people of Benjamin. Benjamin's not just one person. And they say, give us the guys of Gibeah. Now they're related. Give us the guys who did this. We're going to take care of business. But the Benjamites say, no, we're not going to do it. You know why? There's something about blood and family. How often have you been in a relationship with family or someone that's really close with you that you know you've disobeyed God in such a way because you don't want to use a relationship with them? And isn't it crazy that Jesus says, hey, you know what? Here's what I came to do. I'm not always just coming and having this merry party, but I actually came to divide. And so sometimes loving me looks like actually hating other people. It's not that he's saying intentionally hate. He's just saying, if you have this wholehearted commitment towards me, there are certain things that you begin to do that, that you want to continue to do. And an act of worship and praise and obedience of who I am that actually looks bad to people around you. But are you in? The Benjamin said, no. We're staying with our, our family right here, the Gibeonites. And so now there's a fight. There's not a fight. There's a war. There's a civil war going on. Like, like think about this. Chapter 1, they were told, be blessed by God, take the land. Since they did not, sin crept in and crept in and progressed, and progressed and progressed and progressed. To now, they're killing each other. And that's exactly what happens. And then the people of Israel, they don't just stop at getting these guys. It's so crazy what happens. Bitterness sometimes becomes vindictiveness. That you start off being bitter, and then you become vindictive. So they take out the guys, and they go even further, and they go way past justice. They go to genocide. They start taking out all the women and all the children who had nothing to do with that. And God did not say to do that. And they make a vow. They say, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to absolutely blot out the name of the, ben- the Benjamites. We're taking them out. Nobody, everybody here, make a vow that you will never give your daughters to be married to them. Like, let's end it right there. And that's exactly what happens. And when the war is over, there's 600 survivors the Benjamites, men. And now Israel has compassion. Wait, what are we doing? We've made a vow. How are these people going to be able to continue? If you look with me in chapter 21, verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till even before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. Well, the rest of the chapter is them trying to figure out a way to get these, these men married. And it's bad. They say, well, you know what? Here's one. Not everybody showed up to Mizpah. In fact, there was one group of people who didn't show up. Um, why don't you guys go to them and, and, and then take them out? And then, whatever virgin women are there, take them. There were 400. And they took the women. They said, we still got a problem because there's 600 men, there's 400 women. What are we going to do about these other 200? And someone says, well, there's this festival that happens. And Jabesh, Gilead, and what happens is people come out and they dance. During that time, the women would be out and they'll be away from their fathers. And their fathers can't really give them in the marriage. But if you just kind of take them, then that's okay. And so they hide in the vineyards, these men of the Benjamites. And when the women come out for this festival... They run and they snatch them and they take them. And it says they take their wives, not their wives. They take them and they abuse them and they make them and force them to become their wives. And there's this horrible picture. You go, wait a minute, just a chapter ago, these people were the same people who were standing up in righteous indignation, who were coming together in unity, were reaching out and asking God to, to give them advice, and they were going to ultimately enact justice on this, particular, this one woman who was abused. And then just a few verses later, they're co-signing on 400. Like, how does that happen? Because when sin goes unchecked in our lives, that's what happens. When God is not at the center, not just in the periphery, guys. When he's not at the center, don't think it can happen to you. And don't think it can happen to us. There's a lot of churches that were thriving at some point where the word of God was being taught and people were saying amen and they were loving Jesus only to this moment that they're not. And I'm not thinking of any particular ones in name. I'm just going, hey, it could happen. And you get to this very last part of Judges in chapter 21. And the writer concludes with this in verse 23. And the people of Benjamin did so, meaning they took their wives. And so they took their wives according to their number from the dancers. They carried off and they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived them. And the people of Israel departed from there at at that time and every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And then the last verse of Judges is the summary and the so what. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it ends. There's no redemption. There's no, oh, and then God raised up this other judge. He was like, no, I didn't. And I think the original audiences are sitting here during the time of exile as this story is being told and going, what happened? Why did we get here? Like, what's our history? And they told this story, this story, this story that the children and men and women go, it was that bad. And it was that bad with the people of God. It wasn't the Canaanites, it wasn't just the Jebusites. It was the people of God who had did these things. And so we, 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 we end with judges, and we go, okay, what is our implications of who we know about God and what we got about us when we, as we walk away from this series of judges? And there's just a few things I have for us here. The first one here, number one, God is merciful and gracious. Throughout this book, we've seen the people of God turn their back, turn their back, turn their back, turn their back, and God showed mercy, meaning he delivered them. They didn't deserve that. He delivered them. And then he showed grace. He extended forgiveness. He constantly was there for them. But he shows that he's merciful. Number two, though, but he brings judgment. You can't, oh, God's merciful and he's he's gracious. Yeah, but he judges. He judges his people and he judges those who are not his people. Like God does not let sin go unchecked in individuals and in the lives of people. And so you you see that he's a God who judges. And then number three here, and this is very applicable for us, half-hearted worship will lead to half-hearted obedience. Let me camp here for a second. There are moments in my life where I know my marriage has become an idol, where it's actually more important to me than my relationship with Jesus. There are moments that I know my kid's future. In fact, most moments, my kid's future, their protection, their safety, their well-being, as I see it through my eyes, becomes my God. And I wrap prayer around it, and I wrap scripture around it, and it could look externally godly when I stay up all night thinking about that and not getting on my knees and saying, there is one who's actually in control, who cares about them more than I do, can I actually do something about it. Maybe I should trust in him. Half-hearted worship, meaning God and anything else will lead to half-hearted obedience, which is no obedience at all. And that's all of us, guys. All of us could look in the mirror and say, Lord, I'm um, creating me a new heart. I'm Um, recalibrate my life in such a way that I live my life Godward into every area of my life that obedience flows from understanding who you are. And then lastly, this one only makes sense if we get this. We walk away from her going, it ends like this and there's no other judge. There's no other deliverer because we need a savior king. We actually need someone who can come and do what none of the judges could do. That means rescue and restore to heal our hearts and to heal our land to bring transformation in such a way that it could never be turned back. That we ultimately need someone to heal, someone to bring about justice, someone who ultimately can take the judgment that's due our way and take it upon himself that we may live in the mercy and grace in which God extends. And there's no one in the scriptures that have come out of Israel that this can happen other than the one who created Israel would step into the world and do it himself. And we see that there's none other and there's no other name in which people could be saved other than the God Savior, Jesus Christ. Every other thing that we try to rest our lives on will crumble. Every other thing is like building a deck deck of cards, a house. It could be blown over. Even the things in which we love, the things in which we give our lives to, none of those things can ultimately fill the void that's in our heart and can redeem the world in the way that it's supposed to be. That can only happen with Jesus. He's the only one who says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And when we forsake him, he's the only one who went to the cross and he died for us. He forgives us. There was no other name in which we can know and trust and grow and repent in and who is worthy of our utmost praise and worship than Jesus Christ as our ultimate Lord and Savior of every area of our life. Amen? That all of us, every single one of us, don't care how long you've walked with Jesus or you never have, we turn to him and say, Lord, do in us what you, we would not and cannot do in ourselves, that we may be replenished by the waters of your Holy Spirit. When we get that and only in response to that, Jesus, We can walk away with the so what of this text and the so what of the whole book of Judges. Do what is good in the sight of the Lord. There is a king, and his name is Jesus. And when you start there, you grow in there, you continue in there. The only response is to obey out of a loving relationship and understanding who he is for you and the people around him, and do exactly what God said is good and pleasing corporately and individually that we may know He is our Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, You are good and You are gracious and You are holy and You are God. From the beginning of the pages to the very end, Lord, it is replete of our not getting that. I confess, Lord, I don't get it the way that I need to. We confess we don't get it the way that we need to. We think we do, Lord. (laughs) And we're so thankful that you are gracious enough to continue to walk with us. I pray for those who weep and allow us to weep with those who weep. God, and we thank you that one day your word says that you will actually take every single tear that has been shed and that you will wipe it away. That, Jesus, you are coming to heal the land and not for a temporary moment, Lord, but to redeem and to restore and bring heaven here that things will be made right. You are our judge You are a deliverer. You are a rock. You are a redeemer. You are a king. You are a savior. You are a Lord. And we confess that to you, Lord. Our hearts desire it. We know that we are prone to wander. And to everything else, and so, Lord, would you by your spirit continue to bring about the conviction which we need to know you, to follow you, and to humbly walk with you all the days of our life. We thank you for this series and all that it's done in us and through us. In Christ's name, amen.